0: Chapter 4. Teach My Mind to See You I Can Think for Myself Quote, Do not conform yourselves to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and pleasing and perfect. Unquote. Paul wrote this to the first generation of Roman Christians, but he could just as easily have been talking to us. This is Brother Sam. Every day we're bombarded with messages, a steady stream of words and images. We can't escape their influence. Even when we don't consciously adopt them, we can unconsciously absorb them. Yet, speaking for myself, I've always believed this to be true. I can think for myself. What about you? Last chapter, Alyssa gave insights about hearing God with the heart. I'd like to do something similar with matters of the mind, Here's a simple truth we won't make much progress in hearing god unless we honestly examine the way we think back to saint paul what does he mean by a renewal of the mind i can tell you what he doesn't mean he's not saying that to enter the church we have to check our brains at the door paul was a brilliant thinker well-versed in judaism and torah as well as the philosophies of his day he wanted the same for those in his churches active minds informed disciples When Paul speaks of renewal here, he's pointing to another one of those apparent contradictions of life in Christ. Just like we need to be willing to die in order to live, or we need to obey God in order to be free, something similar applies to our patterns of thought. In order to think for ourselves, we need to think with the mind of Christ. See 1 Corinthians 2, 16. That's a bold claim, so we'll start by returning to ancient Rome. I'm going to rely on a popular Christian author, an Anglican theologian named N.T. Wright. He's written extensively on the thought world of Paul and the Greco-Roman society of his day. The critical issue, according to Wright, is the way we see with our minds, something called worldviews. Life in a Stew of Worldviews In Rome, the capital city of an empire, Followers of Christ found themselves immersed in a melting pot of ideas. Philosophies competed in an open market of belief systems, vying for the loyalties of a distracted population, offering answers to life's deepest questions. Today we know these by names like Stoicism, Gnosticism, Platonism, or Epicureanism, to list only a few. You'll miss the point, though, if you treat these as theories or abstractions. N.T. Wright points out that the philosophies in Paul's day were thoroughly practical. Philosophers, he writes, were not, quote, working out schemes of ideas detached from everyday life. Philosophy in the ancient world was everyday life, lived, reflected upon, and interpreted in this or that way, unquote. Wright describes such systems of thought in terms of worldviews. A worldview is a set of governing principles and underlying assumptions, ground our understanding of reality. Like a pair of glasses, they're not the things we see, but rather the lens through which we see things. Worldviews inform our vision of life, the universe, everything really. They provide an underlying narrative embedded so deeply, we don't even know they're there. Like the foundations of a house, worldviews are hidden but essential to the overall structure of our thinking, choosing, and doing. That's why they're hugely important. A worldview, then, is a way of telling the story of the world. It's a way of seeing reality that leads to a way of life. Each worldview in ancient Rome presented itself as an all-encompassing drama and invited people to see themselves as characters in the unfolding narrative. Think about it. When you're surrounded by so much complexity, there's something very appealing about the simplicity of a story. No wonder in our opening quote from Romans, Paul urged the fledgling Christians not to conform their minds to the surrounding culture, a.k.a. this age. He saw how easily they could be taken in. To extract these stories from their long names and longer definitions, Wright uses a simple device. He offers four questions that every worldview attempts to answer. They are, Who are we? Where are we? What is wrong? What's the solution? 1. Who are we? Not so much as particular persons, but collectively. Two, where are we? What's the situation we find ourselves in? Again, think big picture. Three, what is wrong? What's the fundamental threat to our well-being? Four, what's the solution? What's the right response that leads to happiness and peace? Platonism, for example, might answer these questions as follows. Who are we? BEINGS UNDER ILLUSION Where are we? In a material world of shadows, many steps removed from reality and enlightenment. What is wrong? What we believe to be reality is only an illusory projection, far from the true realm of immaterial forms and ideals. What's the solution? To be liberated by philosophy from the darkened cave of secondary impressions and emerge into the light of eternal forms. My apologies to any philosophy majors. I realize this simplifies Plato in the extreme, but it also illustrates the way the four questions can help us unpack the underlying story of a worldview. Not all such worldviews are wrong, I should add. There's much truth to be found in Platonism and other philosophies of the ancient world. In the Gospel of John, for example, the Greek word logos is used to describe the eternal word of God. That term is borrowed from the Stoics and the philosopher Heraclitus. Another notable example is St. Thomas Aquinas, one of the church's greatest theologians, who drew heavily from Aristotle, one of Plato's disciples. Where worldviews do contain error, though, they are stubbornly hard to uproot. In the book of Acts, we see Paul presenting the gospel in Athens, Acts 17, verses 16-34. to The Greeks are receptive until he mentions resurrection from the dead, verse 32. That's a deal-breaker for a room full of scholars who believe material things like flesh are evil. It's one of the few cities Paul leaves without establishing a church. Key takeaway, errors embedded in our worldviews can get in the way of our full acceptance of the gospel. What about our worldviews? This matters because it also applies today. Like the Christians of Rome, we find ourselves immersed in many worldviews most of which we're only partially aware of. Consider the way a college student might start his day. Let's say the name is Brandon. His phone alarm goes off after several snoozes. He sits up and checks his messages. There's one from a friend. Hey, man, did you take the offer? Brandon. Nope, money was good, but too much work. Lifeguarding again this summer. Friend. Whatever makes you happy, bro. Then he sees phone battery is low. I just charged it last night. It's only at 30% by the time he showers, unplugs it, and heads out the door. My life would be so much easier if I could afford a new iPhone and dump this POS, he says. Pretty ordinary, right? Consider three worldviews that are probably at work here. Hedonism, individualism, and materialism. Hedonism is the ethical theory that pleasure is the highest good and proper aim of human life. Individualism favors freedom of action for individuals over collective control. Materialism is a tendency to consider material possessions and physical comfort as more important than spiritual values. Discuss. Can you identify where these might be influencing Brandon? Take a look at the breakdown below and then apply it to the story above. What about your own life? Do you see any of these at work in your worldview? Talk about it. Hedonism, individualism and materialism. How might these worldviews answer the four defining questions? Hedonism. Who are we? Beings moved by two forces, pleasure and pain. Where are we? A world of sensual pleasures and delights. What is wrong? Every form of suffering since it deprives us of happiness. What's the solution? Maximize every pleasure and avoid every type of pain. Individualism. Who are we? Autonomous beings, that is, beings capable of total self-determination. Where are we? A world in which one is either an authority or is under authority. What is wrong? Authority itself. What's the solution? For people to reject every form of external control, whether it's government regulation or church authority or corporate manipulation. When we're all free to choose what's best for ourselves without any such oppression, there will be true peace in the world. Materialism There are various kinds. We'll stick to the type illustrated above. Who are we? Material beings who find comfort and happiness in tangible things that our physical bodies can experience. Things we can see, understand, handle, and use. Where are we? a material world made accessible to us through a global economy unlike anything history has ever known. What is wrong? We can't always get the goods, services, and information we want or need to find satisfaction in life. What's the solution? More access to goods and more wealth by which to acquire them. Looking over the answers, you might be saying, that's crazy, I don't believe these things. But if you go back to the definition of a worldview, that like a pair of glasses, it's not something you look at, but something you look through, you start to understand better how such systems of belief influence us. They hide in plain sight so close to us that they color our vision of the world without our knowing it. The only way we recognize them is by analyzing our behaviors to uncover the underlying beliefs that drive them. When we honestly ask ourselves, what makes me think this is true? we begin to recognize the worldviews at work in our lives. An example of this in my own life is utilitarianism. This is a modern philosophy that sounds pretty good on the surface. Utilitarians hold that an action is right insofar as it promotes happiness, and that the greatest happiness of the greatest number should be the guiding principle of conduct. It's the belief that the value of anything, products, services, even people, is measured by usefulness insofar as it produces happiness. I had no idea how much this worldview influenced me. I discovered a hidden belief that my value was found primarily in what I could do and how much I could produce. It's not like I consciously thought these things. I didn't wake up one day and say, I think I'll be a utilitarian. Rather, I acted out of unspoken assumptions feeling like I couldn't be loved unless I was accomplishing something significant in my life. Have you ever felt this way? Discuss. The ways you see these worldviews influencing yourself and the people around you. Where do these influences come from? Worldviews are like wet on a sponge, surrounding, soaking, saturating. We can't escape them. They work on us through our friends, family, and social networks. Even when we name them, know them, and identify their influence in our lives, we're never totally free of them. Our only hope is to put something stronger in place that can hold its own against these competing claims on reality. We have to put on the mind of Christ. Discuss How can we combat worldviews that are contrary to the gospel when we don't always realize we're being influenced by them? A Christian worldview. When Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, he understood these things. He knew the only defense against the crush of conflicting worldviews was a firm grasp of the gospel. Our modern biases can blind us to just how subversive this is. We tend to think of religion merely as part of our lives, like a certain set of rituals and beliefs we're free to choose and practice. Religion in ancient Rome, if we can even call it that, was an all-encompassing declaration of loyalty. There was no separation of church and state. The state was the religion and Caesar was God. To reject that worldview wasn't a choice. It was open rebellion. When Paul says Jesus is Lord, in Greek, Kyrios, see Romans 1.4, he's adopting the title reserved exclusively for Caesar. He's declaring the arrival of a new king and a new kingdom. He's not offering Jesus as one option among many. He's saying, declare allegiance to the one true Lord or remain a slave to the lords of this world. N.T. Wright explains, quote, If all this sounds like a recipe for social and cultural upheaval, we are on the right track. As the stories and acts will testify and as Paul's letters will emphasize, anyone propagating this kind of subversive message will be the target of scorn, anger, and violence. It wasn't too long on his first missionary journey, before Paul would face all three, The Christian worldview then is subversive. It's a way of telling the story of the world that supplants other worldviews. How does Christianity answer the four worldview questions? Again, I'm relying on Wright who offers some helpful contrasts. He writes, who are we? We are humans made in the image of our creator. We have responsibilities that come with this status. We are not fundamentally determined by race, gender, social class, geographical location, nor are we simply pawns in a determinist game. Where are we? We are in a good and beautiful, though transient, world, the creation of the God in whose image we are made. We're not in an alien world as the Gnostic imagines, nor in a cosmos to which we owe allegiance as to a God, as the pantheist would suggest. What is wrong? Humanity has rebelled against our Creator and God. This brought about a cosmic dislocation between the Creator and the creation, and the world is consequently out of tune with its created intention. What is the solution? God has acted, is acting, and will act within His creation to deal with the weight of evil set up by human rebellion and to bring this world to the end for which it was made, namely, that it should resonate fully with His own presence and glory. This action, of course, is focused upon Jesus and the Holy Spirit. By contrasting Christianity with other worldviews, we're not claiming they've got it all wrong. No, the problem is that even when they get it right, they offer only partial answers at best. Only Christianity gets to the heart of the matter, the real problem in our world, human rebellion in the form of sin, and the fact that we're unable to remedy this on our own. As Christians, we believe that we are sinners who have been redeemed, bought at a great price by the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. His resurrection and ascension to the Father has opened the way for the coming of the Holy Spirit. When we reject sin and confess Jesus as Lord, we don't merely become members of a group. Through baptism, we are united in the body of Christ, and the full power of the Holy Spirit flows in and through us to bring the kingdom of God into the world right here right now other worldviews might point out problems and possible solutions only the christian worldview comes with power for lasting transformation let's put this to work how does a christian worldview answer my utilitarian tendencies by rooting me deeply in the truth that i am made in the image and likeness of god with value that isn't governed by my accomplishments can you see the difference i'm not just saying that way of thinking is wrong I'm supplanting the lie with truth, and when I call on the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, I overthrow that utilitarian worldview. In Jesus' name, I reject the lie that I can earn God's love by anything that I do. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I accept the truth that I am created good and loved for who I am. Amen. Call this to mind the next time a bad grade or poor performance on the playing field leaves you feeling not merely disappointed, a legitimate response, but totally worthless, which is a lie. Father, thank you for loving me and giving me worth that doesn't depend on my success. Amen. How do we take on the mind of Christ? Maybe when it's laid out like this, the Christian worldview sounds too familiar. I've heard all this before. It's nothing new. In my early Christian life, I thought I knew the gospel. Looking back now, I can see that I really didn't. I knew about it, but I hadn't really taken it on completely. Here's one way to think of it. The difference between knowing about Christ and fully adopting the Christian worldview is like the difference between watching Iron Man as a cool character in an Avengers movie and actually putting on the Iron Man suit. Joining a great company of warriors, going out on missions, armed against attack, battling evil, and seeing through the face screen, an interpretive display of everything going on around you. <laughs> Weird analogy, I know. But I'm trying to give you some idea of how radical it is when Paul writes, quote, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. unquote. Galatians 3.17 Clothed yourselves, that is, taken on Christ in every way, including his worldview. When you understand and live your baptism this way, you become another Christ. You become a warrior for his kingdom. Has this happened yet for you? Discuss. When you think of mission as something we do with and in Christ rather than something we do for Christ, how does that change your perspective? Are there characters in movies, shows, or books that capture this kind of close bond between, for example, a commander and platoon, a parent and child, or a teacher and students? Jesus proclaimed the kingdom saying, quote, This is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Unquote, from Mark 1, verse 15. In Greek, the language of the New Testament, the word for repent is metanoia, Meta means go beyond, transcend, or transform. Noose means mind. The Lord isn't using these terms the way we think of them today. He's not proposing a casual redirection like, I was going to the rec center, but I changed my mind. Jesus is talking about a total reorientation, not only of the way you think, intellect, but of your whole person, heart, soul, mind, and body. This is the internal revolution that enables us to hear God in a completely new way. No longer is he one voice among many in our heads. When God speaks, his words stand out with greater clarity and power because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. So Paul writes, quote, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit that is from God, so that we may understand the things freely given us by God. And we speak about them, not with words taught by human wisdom, but with words taught by the Spirit, describing spiritual realities in spiritual terms. Now the natural person does not accept what pertains to the Spirit of God, for to him it is foolishness, and he cannot understand it, because it is judged spiritually. The spiritual person, however, can judge everything, but is not subject to judgment by anyone. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to counsel him? But we have the mind of Christ. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 12 to 16. How do we take on the mind of Christ? Jesus has already said it himself. We repent. But with a better understanding of worldviews and the work of the Spirit, this starts to make more sense. Jesus isn't saying, stop doing this or that bad thing. He's saying, let me bring you into a completely new way of seeing and understanding reality. Doesn't this change everything? It's not, get your act together or you can't be with me. He's saying, allow me access to all of your life and I will transform you from within. You'll never see the world the same way again. I only need your permission. So what are we waiting for? Seeking the Mind of Christ As with previous chapters, we conclude by bringing this to prayer. Below are seven common worldviews we come in contact with almost every day. Since we're so used to them, we probably pay very little attention to the ways they influence our thinking. We need a strategy for holding them up to the light of the gospel. The simple approach offered here comes with an important caution. When seeking the mind of Christ, make sure the voice you hear is coming from the heart of Christ. Why this caution? To engage with our worldviews is to engage in spiritual battle. If the evil one can't keep us from recognizing his lies, he changes tactics and tries to discourage us. Some of these worldviews will hit close to home, and when we see them in ourselves, the enemy will want to make us feel accused and condemned. That's not the voice of the Good Shepherd. The true voice of the Lord comes from a place of hope and strength. Even when he convicts us of the need to repent and uncovers worldviews we need to change, his word is always constructive and upbuilding. Quote, Learn from me, he says, for I am meek and humble of heart, unquote. Matthew 11, verse 29. The following four steps can be used to reflect on any part of the Christian life, but here we'll use them to invite Jesus to speak into our worldviews. They are acknowledge, relate, receive, and respond. Acknowledge, name it. Go through the list below and use the questions provided to see if that particular worldview is at work in your own life. Relate. Bring it to the Lord in faith. Resist the impulse to fight it or fix it. Instead, take it to the Lord in prayer. Receive. Allow Jesus into it. Ask for his mind on it. Listen for the voice of the Good Shepherd and let him speak to you with clarity and conviction. Don't try to figure it out but invite the Lord to lead you. For example, he may call to mind a passage of Scripture that brings light to the situation. Respond. Approach it anew in Christ. Decide which area of your life the Lord is gracing you to make positive change. Let him guide you so it doesn't feel like you have to work on everything at once. There is a time and a season for every stage of this deep metanoia. You ready? Seven common worldviews. Some of these you've heard before, but now we'll walk through them more slowly and prayerfully. Number one, individualism. Definition, the habit or principle of being independent and self-reliant. How an individualist might answer the four worldview questions. Who are we? Autonomous beings, that is, beings capable of total self-determination. Where are we? a world in which one is either an authority or is under authority. What is wrong? Authority itself. What's the solution? For people to reject every form of external control, whether it's government regulation or church authority or corporate manipulation. When we're all free to choose what's best for ourselves without any such oppression, there will be true peace in the world. Where might there be individualism in me? Have I resisted or disobeyed someone with legitimate authority simply because I wanted to do my own thing? Am I too self-sufficient? Have I refused to let my needs be known by those who could help me, especially when the need was great? Do I place my identity in being a rebel, questioning authority and rejecting the rules, even when the rules are reasonable and just? 2. Materialism Definition A tendency to consider material possessions and physical comfort as more important than spiritual values. How a materialist might answer the four worldview questions. Who are we? Material beings who find comfort and happiness in tangible things that our physical bodies can experience, things we can see, understand, handle, and use. Where are we? A material world made accessible to us through a global economy unlike anything history has ever known. What is wrong? We can't always get the goods, services and information we want or need to find satisfaction in life. What's the solution? More access to goods and more wealth by which to acquire them. Where might there be materialism in me? Do I feel sad when I see that others have nicer things than I do? Phones, laptops, cars, etc. Do I daydream about having these things in the future? As soon as I graduate and get a good job or make enough at work, is my priority to seek the Lord's guidance as I plan my financial future, or am I more interested in getting nice things like a brand new truck or sports car? Do I spend money I don't have and create debt I can't afford for things I don't need? 3. Hedonism. Definition, the pursuit of pleasure, sensual self-indulgence. How a hedonist might answer the four worldview questions. Who are we? Beings moved by two forces, pleasure and pain. Where are we? A world of sensual pleasures and delights. What is wrong? Every form of suffering since it deprives us of happiness. What's the solution? Maximize every pleasure and avoid every type of pain. Where might there be hedonism in me? Do I often choose the easy way simply because it's easy? Do I often avoid self-discipline because of the extra effort it takes? Have I pursued pleasure, for example, drinking or gaming, at the expense of worthy goals and necessary responsibilities? Have I chosen to sleep in rather than get up for Sunday Mass? 4. Narcissism Definition? Excessive interest in or admiration of oneself and one's physical appearance. How a narcissist might answer the four worldview questions. Who are we? A massive humanity made up mostly of uninspired, unattractive, and uninteresting people. Where are we? An incredible world full of exciting possibilities waiting to be discovered by people with just the right kind of awesome ability. What is wrong? Most people just go about their lives doing what's expected, boring, and predictable. They don't have what it takes to make the world a better place. What's the solution? I am. I can change the world because I believe in myself. Where might there be narcissism in me? Have I discounted other people's ideas, input, or work because it's not as energizing, interesting, and cool as my own? Am I often distracted in daily life, wondering what I should post that I think will get the most likes? 5. Utilitarianism Definition The doctrine that actions are right if they are useful or for the benefit of a majority. How a utilitarian might answer the four worldview questions. Who are we? Beings whose greatest good is happiness. Where are we? A world containing much unhappiness. What is wrong? In a word, inefficiency. Unproductive activities that don't maximize happiness. What's the solution? Minimizing or eliminating everything and everyone that is unproductive. Where might there be utilitarianism in me? Have I made productivity and achievement the measure of my value as a person? Do I let myself feel completely worthless when I don't perform well? Do I find prayer and worship difficult because I believe they don't really accomplish anything? Do I value relationships primarily to the extent they provide me with some personal benefit? Six, syncretism. Definition, the amalgamation or attempted amalgamation of different religions, cultures, or schools of thought. How a syncretist might answer the four worldview questions. Who are we? We are beings who seek meaning and purpose in our lives. Where are we? A world that offers many valid paths to enlightenment, truth, and ultimate happiness. What is wrong? So much of the conflict in our world is driven by religious intolerance and philosophical arrogance. What's the solution? For people to understand that God or truth or love is too big to fit into any single religion or philosophy. that we will learn to coexist once we realize that our differences don't really matter. Where might there be syncretism in me? Do I believe that all religions are the same deep down? That all, for example, are based on love, or on being a better person, or on seeking personal fulfillment? Do I think that when Jesus says, judge not, he means that we should never criticize or disagree with other people's beliefs? 7. Relativism. Definition. The doctrine that knowledge, truth, and morality exist in relation to culture, society, or historical context, and are thus not absolute. How a relativist might answer the four worldview questions. Who are we? Autonomous, self-defining beings who decide for ourselves, personally, what is true and good. Where are we? A world whose meaning comes from the people in it. What is wrong? People often make negative judgments about the beliefs and lifestyles of others. What's the solution? Reject absolute truth. Leave people alone to define truth in whatever way is meaningful to them so that no one can be judged negatively. Where might there be relativism in me? Do I approve of and affirm people's choices even when they violate God's commandments? Am I unwilling to speak of Jesus and the gospel kerygma As something that's true for somebody else and not just true for me acknowledge relate receive and respond acknowledge name it relate bring it to the lord in faith receive allow jesus into it ask for his mind on it respond approach it anew in christ